morning. It's so good to see all of you and to see uh, so many of you uh, whose uh, names I do not know, faces I don't uh, recognize. So glad that you're here with us, especially if you're a first-time guest with us this morning. I want to welcome you and um, just tell you how grateful we are that you're here. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And um, it perhaps if you are uh, gathered with us and you are new, um, this is your first time on our property, or maybe you've been with us for a couple of weeks, and every time that you've shown up, at least over the last few weeks, something is new and changed here. Um, I, I do want to just give you just a brief update before we open up Matthew chapter 6, that uh, we are in the midst of a construction project to renovate uh, this property and uh, make it more accommodating for us as a church. Uh, we acquired this. If you're new with us, we purchased this property just in August of this last year and have been working to uh, sort of make some uh, changes. What you see as you walk in, that uh, giant new space at the back of the room will allow us to move all of our audiovisual team uh, into that space and also have some additional storage in there so that we can make more room here uh, for us to gather and worship. And also, as I know you will all rejoice in, a little more room in our aisles so that you can get in and out of this room, because I know that's always a little bit congestion, and um, some of you, I know it's, uh, you know, you get too tight spaces, that uh, claustrophobia sort of starts to set in. So we're trying to accommodate all of that, and we're really excited about uh, being here, and so thank you for your patience as we uh, work through this project. Um, we got to open up our new Littles uh, wing just a couple weeks ago, so if you have a little one, a baby, uh, through a four-year-old, that's where they go, and I know um, it's such a joy to be able to um, be there um, and to have that space open for them. And in our kids' church, uh, we are just continuing to even sort of improve and uh, make some changes there for our, our uh, K through fifth grade student, uh, student kids um, uh, in that space. So that's all that's happening here on our property. And I just felt like it was important to give you a little bit of an update, and especially those of you that are new with us, to let you know. Well, we are returning this week to the Sermon on the Mount. We had a couple weeks break from the Sermon on the Mount um, as we celebrated baptisms. And then last week, just reflecting on baptism, just uh, took an opportunity to sort of uh, focus our attention once again on this word that uh, has been on my heart for the last year and the calling for us as Christians to live with humility. But as uh, Brian read for us, we're returning to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And if you have not been with us uh, in this entire series, if you're new with us, I want to encourage you, you can go back to uh, anywhere you find a podcast and you can catch up on, uh, on this series. This is, you'll have a little bit of work to do. Uh, we began in Matthew chapter 5. We're now nearing the end of chapter 6, and this is the 22nd message uh, from this sermon. So what Jesus could do in one setting, it's taking us quite some time. That's because I'm not near, I'm not Jesus. I'm not, I can't preach that well. So, uh, but we're unpacking and digging in and trying trying to really uh, dig deeply into this word, this most important sermon that Jesus gave and delivered to us. And as uh, if you are catching up with us, as I've started from chapter 6 uh, every time, I want to remind us of Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, where Jesus frames what he is saying in this text. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven." Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount announcing and telling us that the kingdom of God was here. That's how he started his ministry. He's arrived, and with him he brought the kingdom of God. 
Now, we uh, don't see this kingdom, and even those, of, especially those that were with Jesus physically as he taught this, and they thought of this idea of the kingdom, they were expecting the Messiah to set up an earthly kingdom, overthrow the Roman rulers who had oppressed the people of God for many years, for a long time, and they were hoping for this, in a sense, somewhat of a political kingdom. But that's not what Jesus came to deliver, what he came to do. But he, he wanted them to know that the kingdom is here. And then he gave us these beatitudes, blessed are, and he listed out in the first beatitude that he gave, blessed are those who, um, excuse me, blessed are, I lost my thought there, got to turn over, don't want to misquote Jesus here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, thank you, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so as they, the entrance into the kingdom of heaven is this understanding of the poverty of spirit, our need for Christ. And after he announces his kingdom and teaches us that it is here, he showed us what it looks like to live as citizens of his kingdom. Very important uh, context there or the way that Jesus taught and the order that he took. And that he taught us what it means to how, in a sense, how we are Christians, our poverty of spirit, our recognition of our need for something that we do not have, our thirst and hunger for righteousness that we can't find from within ourselves, And he establishes us as citizens of his kingdom. And then after that, how we are to live as citizens of this kingdom. He showed us what our lives are to look like as citizens of this new kingdom. What are the things, the marks of citizens of the kingdom of God? He went on then because he knew the the conflict that would arise in his original hearers' hearts. They would have thought, so you're here and you're throwing out all of the Old Testament and all of the law that we have been raised on and that we have been taught. And so Jesus interacted with that. He said, no, I came as a fulfillment of the law. Everything that you read in your Old Testament points to me. All of the law and the prophets testify to who I am. And they demonstrate how how we are to live And then finally in Matthew chapter 6, as he gets to this series that we've been working through from chapter 6, he reminds us and is teaching us how we live in relationship or what's most important as we live in relationship to God. That our lives are seen and known by God. Sometimes you might ask yourself, and you either have been asked this question, you might ask it of your own, yourself, or it's come up in conversation, it's been referenced in movies, what's the secret to life? As we first began this section of Jesus' teaching from chapter 6, we asked the question, what's the secret to life? And the secret to life is that God knows you, and not only does he know you, but he cares for you, and the fact that he cares for you, he sees you, and your life matters, How we live matters. This is why so much instruction is given as Jesus unpacks this chapter as to how we are to live. It's not something that we just get to think, take lightly or think less than. But the secret to life is that God knows you. He knows me in all of my flaws and all of my sinfulness and all of the brokenness in my own heart. He knows me. And yet, In all of that, even with that sinfulness, he's proven through our Savior Jesus that he cares for me. And ultimately, as I live my life, as I go about doing all of the things that I do throughout my day, that he sees me and it matters to him. Just think about if we understood, if we lived, when I I say it's the secret to life, if we lived with that understanding in everything we did. My temptation, I'll just tell you, I say that this is my aim is to live with that in mind constantly, but I fail at that. I don't do that perfectly. I don't expect that any of us do. 
But can you imagine what it would look like if rather than waking up in the morning, thinking about all the things that we have to do on our plates, thinking about all the things that we want to accomplish, all the things that need to happen for us to have joy or happiness or any of those sorts of things, but that in every moment, literally, constantly, every interaction, we thought to ourselves, this matters to God. This purchase of a cheeseburger going through the line matters to God. Now, I know you're thinking the kids love this. They're like, well, how does, that, how, how does that matter to God? It matters because we're doing it. We're involved, and God sees us and knows us and cares for us. And so every little thing in our lives, no matter what it is, every engagement that we have matters to God. Yes, as I get frustrated because the drive through lines are ridiculously long these days and sit and get impatient I'm reminded this matters to God. Have some patience, have some grace, have some kindness, have some mercy. All of those things that we can do, it matters to God. So Jesus, as he's teaching us this all throughout chapter 6, he's done three things. I'm just giving a little bit of a recap for us. But as he begins, and he uses the Pharisees, he over and over again, he's using the Pharisees, the religious elite of his day, and the people, those that the people would have revered and looked to for, and at least in past tense, in some sense as authority figures over godly living and over the church. And he uses them as an example. And he says, first, he addresses how they relate, how we relate to others. See, the Pharisees, they were called, God's people called to care for the poor, called to care for other people in need. But as they did that, they demonstrated they were more concerned not about the glory of God, not about what God said about them or thought about them, but receiving the praise of man, practicing their righteousness before others. And so as they gave to the poor, they wanted to make sure that everybody knew they gave to the poor. So even in that, in doing what God had called them to do, as they relate to one another, Jesus instructs. He then turns to prayer and how we relate to God, our vertical relationship as it's been described sometimes. And even as the Pharisees would go to prayer, or as Gentiles, believers, would go to prayer, the Pharisees would stop and they would make sure they prayed so that everybody kind of saw where they prayed. They'd stop in the market square. They'd make sure that they prayed in public. The Gentiles would use very eloquent words and big words and language to ensure that everybody thought they were more righteous and more holy and more wise than anyone else. And all these things worrying about the praise of man. So Jesus has addressed how we relate to one another as we care for the poor or just in generally relating to one another. That matters to God, and it matters how we go about living our lives, how we relate to him through prayer and any other means that we relate to him. It matters to God. And here as we come to this text where he's using fasting as the illustration, he says this matters to God, and he's dealing with how we practice our faith internally, individually, that that also matters to God. He's dealt with others, he's dealt with how we relate to him, and now how we practice our faith as individuals. We just finished an extensive look at the Lord's Prayer, and he taught us this model prayer to contrast how the Pharisees prayed. He taught earlier to give in secret, not for the praise of others, but for the praise of God alone. This is what Jesus is after, what he's dealing with when he comes to verse 16 and he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. 
Even in this thing, this obedient thing, this thing that they were called to do, in some ways at least, they were more focused on the praise of man rather than the glory of God. And if we think about and this idea of fasting, what this is, what Jesus is, and we're going to speak specifically about fasting in a few moments, but what Jesus is doing here is he's using this as an illustration, again, or as a picture for how we relate to God internally, individually, in the privacy of our homes, not just corporately here on Sunday mornings, but as individuals. And we think about this idea of obedience to God, and sometimes this idea of being obedient to God, it sort of has a little bit, can be tempting, it can fall a little bit in a, in a gray area. Or we can think that obedience isn't required. You know, we read a lot from Paul, of course, a third of our New Testament written by him, and Paul writes a lot about grace and mercy, and we talk a lot about the grace of Christ and the mercy of Christ and what we receive from him. We just talked about the fact that Jesus is alive, whatever burden you're carrying, he is present with you, and that is all very true. And as we think about that idea of obedience, like Paul dealt with at one point, we can begin to think, oh, so we should just live however we want to live and however we desire to live. It doesn't matter to God. Ultimately, his grace will meet us there. Let us sin so that grace may abound. Paul was asked that question. And Paul, the answer to that question he gave us was no, never. That's not what Jesus is after. There is a calling towards obedience. We see that taught in the book of James, where James teaches us faith without works is dead. And as we hear these two ideas, and we read all of the epistles of Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Corinthians, all of those books, we hear and we see this message of grace and mercy over and over and over again. But then we turn to James and we hear this message of works that we must do something, that our faith requires a degree of obedience. And we can begin to say to ourselves, that the Bible is in conflict with itself, that which one is it? And there's been many people that have tried to d- debate that battle. But here's the truth. Both of those texts are in the Bible. Both of them are true. What God is doing through Paul, much of his writing, and James, is he's allowing us to look at the same coin from opposite sides. Faith leads is a result of grace and mercy. Faith leads to obedience. And it's all for God's glory and for our good. Those two things work together. I would guess most of us in this room want to be obedient to God. We're here, gathered, because we want to be obedient to God. If you're watching with us online, you have a desire to be obedient. The fact that you're here, no matter what it is, you might not know Jesus. You might not believe that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You might not have put your hope in him yet. But there's something in your soul, the reason that you're here this morning, that we're worshiping together, is because something in your heart tells you that you need to relate with God in some way. And thankfully, in his kindness, he brought you here so that he could tell you how much he loves you. You could hear and you could experience it physically through the gathered body of Christ. But we want to be obedient, but if we're honest, there's constantly this conflict in our hearts. I, don't, I want to be obedient to God, but I want to do these other things. These other things are of value to me. I want to have fun. I want, to, I want the praise of man. I want to be appreciated by others. I want to be valued. I want to be respected, whatever those things might be. 
And as we think about obedience to God, it can kind of begin to feel we can be tempted to believe that if we try or we work towards obedience, that we're letting, low, letting go of the gospel of grace. As we say often, there's nothing I can do to earn God's love, so should I do anything is the question we ultimately can ask. Well, let me, think, let me paint the picture for you in this way. I've got three sons. Many of you know them. Their names end in son because there's three of them, Grayson, Carson, Hudson. Wasn't planned that way, just sort of the third one came along, and we said, hey, we might as well finish the set. And, uh, and so these three sons, my sons, two of them here with us this morning, I love them. I love them unconditionally, just as all of you who are parents love your children. And if you're not parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or just the body of Christ, you love the children of this church as an extension of your family. But I love them as my sons. And I want the very best for them. I hope for the very best for my children. I desire the very best for my children. And because of my desire for the very best for them, because of my unending love, something that, by the way, they could not earn, and there's nothing that they could do that could ever forsake my love, that could ever cause them to lose my love and my care. But because of that love that I have for them, I instruct them. And I hold them accountable, and I ask and sometimes demand obedience to certain things. There is a way that I deal with them. And because I've lived in this world longer than they have, much longer than they have, I have a, a, at least some sense of wisdom. I know the things that will come after them to harm them. I know the things that will tempt them. I know the things that will take them away from the Lord and the things that will lead them to the Lord. I know the things that will come after them in the world, and I know the things that they can be a little bit more free with. I know those things. And so as a parent, because of my love for them, I instruct and I give guidance. None of those things that I tell them to do None of those things that I say you should not do that, none of those warnings or those cautions, none of that ever changes my love for them. And again, I think we can all recognize that type of love. Here's the beautiful thing. If that's the kind of love I have for my sons as a fallen, earthly, broken father, how much more does our heavenly father Love us, know us, care for us, knows what's best for us, knows what's for our good. God is not wrong when he desires that our lives are lived completely and utterly for his glory because God knows when we live our lives completely for his glory alone, that is for our best good. You've been told a lie. If you think to yourself that doing the things that God would call you to do, living the life that God would instruct you to live, is some sort of oppression from God. No, it's because we have a Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us. And He does these things. He gives us this wisdom, this instruction, because He understands the things that He has called us to do are for your good, for our good. They're for our very best. And so he gives us disciplines, disciplines of the faith to follow so that we might grow in our holiness, grow in looking more like Jesus. This is 
what Jesus is dealing with when he says, and when you fast. He's talking about the private things, the personal things that we do as we grow in our faith. Disciplines like fasting, but also disciplines of prayer, disciplines of gathered worship, disciplines of giving sacrificially. All of these things are disciplines of our faith that help us to grow and look more like Jesus. So Jesus says that, as he has done previously, that we should do these things regularly. They should be practices of our life. That's why he uses the words that he does as he's done in prayer and when. I want you to think about the things that you do in your life that could be preceded with when. Not if, not maybe, not sometimes, not occasionally, but if you had to write the story of your life, they would just be, say, when. When I went to sleep last night, when I woke up and took a breath of air, when I ate some food, when I went to work, when I texted my friend, when I snapped. That's what the kids do these days. It's not this. It's something on the phone. <laughs> when. When I do these things. Not a question. There's no doubt in Jesus' words here that these things would happen. That they would be a part of the life of the body. Verse 5 from chapter 6. And when you pray, Brother Kent, who preached this introductory message to prayer, emphasize this. It's a win. And so when he comes to fasting and when you fast, when you exercise discipline over your life, when you do these things to grow and look more like me, this is what you should do. First Timothy, when we think of this idea, this word discipline, First Timothy 4 gives us a picture of this. Paul is writing to Timothy, a young pastor that he's raising up, and he says, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Not only in the present life, but in the life to come. It holds promise for today, but also for the future, is what Paul says. So he elevates, he says, hey, bodily training is of value. There's, there's, there's a reason, a, a discipline of training your body, running. Paul, we think, enjoyed running. There's, he used the illustration of running at least quite often in his teaching. And so we know that there's this training that happens. And the bodily training is of value. He doesn't diminish that. He doesn't cast that off and say that it's worthless. But he says that godliness, however, is of value in every way. And why does godliness have value in every way, whereas bodily training has only some value? It's because godliness is the only thing that's going to last into eternity. If you think about these disciplines that we engage in, the practices of our faith, like fasting, prayer, gathering and worship, all of those things, they are the only thing that will last into eternity. We get to touch eternity, the eternal kingdom of God, heaven, when we engage in these types of things. Godliness, growing in godliness, is what will last. And it's not only a value in this present life, but in the life to come. It is a value, though in this present life. It will help us. It will help us along. And so, how do we train ourselves for godliness? 
We train ourselves for godliness in the same way we would train for anything else. Some of you have referenced this before. I, uh, I haven't really been feeling up to it lately, so there's not, not a real common thing. But I, I like to cycle, and I have, I have trained for many races. You, you would be very shocked to know that over 15 times I've ridden my bike 100 miles in one setting. And it's, the, the way to do that is you train for it. Marathon runners, you know, you train for it. You get prepared. Even running a 5K, there's now a couch to 5K. That's kind of my favorite thing to do. I die the day after the couch to 5K, but it's kind of fun because I don't have to do much training for that. But we train our bodies. We go and we start doing small bits, and then we do a little bit more and a little bit more. We make a regular routine. Some of you do this very well. You train your bodies well. You're every day of the week, you're up early, you're after work, you're going to the gym, you're doing all the things that you, you feel like you need to do to train. And what we do, if we're going to train ourselves for godliness, we have to make a regular practice then of the same things that make us look more like God, that point us to God, that remind our hearts, as we've already said, that Jesus is alive. The world, I know it comes at me very fast. It tells me very often that I'm messed up. It tries to tell me that the gospel is not true. It tries to tell me there's no way that God could love me. It tries to tell me that there's nothing good in my life. So many things come into my heart and mind and soul on a daily basis. How do I combat those things? How do I push back against those lies? How do I push back against the darkness? I remember the gospel that Jesus is alive. And the way that I remember that Jesus is alive is I practice these disciplines that connect me with him. Gathering together with all of you, I've said it over and over and over again. Some of you that are new, you haven't ever heard this. I'll be here whether I'm a pastor or not. I need the body of Christ. I need to be encouraged in the faith. I need to be reminded of the gospel on a weekly basis. I need to be pointed to Christ. I need you to hold me accountable and to encourage me in all these sorts of things. That's what I need. This, the gathering is important. Prayer. I need to connect with the Lord. I need to spend time in prayer with Him. I need to hear from Him. I need to open my Bible and hear directly from God. Hear His Word as he instructs me and guides me, all of these things I need. And so Jesus, as he gives this picture and uses the illustration of fasting, he's reminding us of these disciplines, that we should do these things. But we do them ultimately for his glory and not the praise of other people, not the praise of man, because we grow in godliness. Now, what the Pharisees had done, and the reason that he uses fasting as an illustration here, is that Pharisees had taken this call to fast. And in the Old Testament, the law established one time that the people of God should fast. It should be on an annual basis. Annually, the people of God should enter into a fast. But the Pharisees, they had, like they often do, they had taken the Scripture, they had taken God's instruction, they had thought to themselves, well, I can do even better than that. I'll make it really, I'll make sure everybody knows how holy and righteous I am. I'll fast twice a week. And as they did fast twice a week, they kind of, they went to the, like, ridiculous, just think about the silliness of this. I mean, it just makes me laugh. They went so far as to not only enter into a fast, but then to make sure that everybody knew they entered into a fast, they, they sort of made their face look gloomy and dull and made sure everybody knew, oh, yeah, he's, he's holy, he's fasting, he's doing a good job. They had taken Scripture 
And they had gone beyond what Scripture called for so that they could try and earn the praise of man. We should be very cautious when we take the Scriptures and the instructions that we're given and try and add on to them or multiply them or make them apply to things that the Scriptures did not apply them to. Let me just sort of take this to an example in our own context this morning. It's very clear that the people of God should gather together in corporate worship. The Sunday gathering of the saints as we do this, again, it's great for our souls, it's for our good, it's ultimately for God's glory. We should do this regularly. But can you imagine if we thought to ourselves, well, I love this place, I love singing with all of you, I feel really good here in this room, I, I love getting to just spend time with you, being encouraged by you, opening the word of God with you, all of those sorts of things. So let's just do this every day. Let's not, let's not do anything else. Let's just stay here. God gave us a cafe, so we have food, we're good, we'll just... Anybody up for just staying here all week? We'll just kind of camp out, live here. We got showers actually in the Littles area, so that we're, we're, we don't even have to smell bad while we gather. Just, just staying here sort of in perpetuity. Taking what God called us to do as a good gift to bring him glory, all these sorts of things. But here's what else. Scripture gives us a very clear instruction that we are to go and make disciples. Go out into the world and do that. The reason that we gather is so that we can glorify God, we can remind ourselves that Jesus is alive, and we can grow in godliness so that when we go out into the world, we can have an impact, so that we can make an impact in the world. We're not supposed to just stay here, even as sweet as this gathering is, even as precious as this, and a, a gift that this place is, not physically, but the spiritual thing that is happening here this morning. We don't just stay here because that's not what he's called us to ultimately. This is a gift. This is a discipline. In the same way, we shouldn't just huddle up in our homes and pray without ceasing. Should we, we should pray without ceasing in the idea, but we shouldn't just spend the, all day, every day, the rest of our lives just sit, sitting down by ourselves in prayer. We should gather together periodically, or we, we should sing. We should do all of these things. These disciplines are given to us for a purpose, and that purpose is to make much of Christ. So, this is why Jesus gives us and reminds us, as he uses the illustration of fasting, that we have a practice, we have a discipline that helps us grow in looking more like him. And he knew the challenge that was before us, and this is why he addresses and uses this word hypocrites, just as he had done in talking about prayer. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. I don't know about you, but I've heard that word hypocrite. I've been called that word hypocrite before just because I'm a Christian, just the testimony of saying I'm a Christian, and then it's referenced sometimes in the world as, oh, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Well, Jesus here uses this language, uses the word hypocrite, and we should look closely at what causes him to use the word hypocrite, just as he did when he talked about prayer. And this is what Jesus uses to define as a hypocrite, he has a group of people here, the Pharisees, who claim to worship God, who claim to be holy in their community, claim to live lives that they say they are set apart by God. They claim to worship God, but they live for the praise of man. That's a hypocrite. That's what Jesus calls the Pharisees here. Someone who says that they live their lives 
They have been given their life, and their lives are to worship God alone and then live for the praise of man. This is the religious elites of Jesus' day he's dealing with here. And it's a cautionary tale for us, friends, that we should say and we should claim that we live for Christ, that we've been redeemed for Christ, by Christ. And then ultimately we go live our lives ultimately for the praise of other people. This is what Jesus, as he gets to the heart of the matter, is dealing with here. We're called to live a life for his glory. Now, as we specifically get to fasting, this is what Jesus is teaching us. Fasting is something that I know is somewhat fallen on, I say fallen into disrepute, not really a regular practice of the church, but as I studied for this text, I can tell you that there were commentators and biblical scholars writing about this from 50, 70, 100 years ago, and in their commentary, it was very interesting to me to, to just read that they would say, this is a discipline that has sort of fallen away from the church, a discipline that has been lost by the church. And the discipline, the difference is, as we think about fasting, see, prayer is, as I said and somewhat misspoke just moments ago, prayer is something that we do without ceasing, it says. Scripture calls us to pray constantly. We should pray over everything. Every situation should, could lead us to pray and ask God for wisdom, for direction, for help, for health, and all of those sorts of things. Fasting, though, is a, is a, is a discipline of our faith that is more situationally driven, See, what fasting does, what it causes us to do, is it causes us to recognize more physically the brokenness of this world. See, we are spiritual beings, but we are also very much physical beings. We have bodies. And as we fast, as we deny our flesh of food or drink, the brokenness of the world, the reality that things are not as they should be, we physically experience that. And what does that cause us to do? Why is it a discipline of our faith? It causes us to run to Jesus in that time of need, to focus our attention on him. And so fasting is not something that we should do just daily or necessarily on a set routine, but it's as we mourn, as we grieve, as we deal with something in the world that causes us, we need Jesus to intervene specifically in this situation. It reminds us that Jesus is our only hope. And as we fast, we're able to cry out to God in a different way. It intensifies the need and our plea with God because we have to acknowledge our weakness. We're given the example of fasting all throughout Scripture. Moses fasted as he wrote the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Daniel fasted from meat and wine. David fasted when he heard the news of Saul's death. Jesus fasted ultimately for 40 days in the desert, this example of fasting, and it reminds us to call out to Christ. It helps us to remember our need for Jesus in this broken world. And so as the people of God, we should be looking for, we should celebrate the disciplines of our faith, prayer, fasting, worship, not as something that is seen as oppressive over us, but as a gift and as an invitation to grow in godliness, to look more like Jesus to a lost and broken world. As we abstain from something, as we turn our hearts away, we say, no, I'm going to deny myself this food, this drink. As we need God to answer a prayer, we're asking God for healing there's some broken situation in our lives, we're able to run to him 
and hide in Christ and give our need over to him. And ultimately, when your need is intensified, do you know what happens? The comfort and the grace and the peace of Christ is received more clearly. See, we don't ever think about that we need food. We don't think about that we need to breathe. We don't think about that we need water until we're deprived of it. And then we recognize, and the person that brings us the food, the person that delivers us from that situation, the person that shows care for us as Jesus comforts us in our need, we're reminded of our Savior. And we grow in faith. And so the next situation that we come upon, because we've experienced this hurt, this brokenness, this hardship, and we've seen Jesus minister to us as we fasted and we've cried out to him for help, our faith increases. And so when we go out into the world and we talk of Jesus, we have more story to tell. We have a greater testimony to share of his faithfulness to us. So let us be a people who don't turn down our nose at the disciplines of our faith but look to Christ and practice these things, making them regular habits, training our bodies, not just for physical gain, but training ourselves in godliness, the only thing that will last into eternity. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to be a people who turn our hearts to you who recognize your graciousness to us, your love for us. And as we do that, we grow in godliness. We reflect you more fully. And ultimately, that aim is so that you would be glorified in the world. So I pray, God, that you would help us this morning not to turn away from these disciplines, not to look at them as something that you gave to us as a means of oppression or to confine us, but as a good father who loves us, you know the challenges that we'll face. You know the concerns that we have. You know the hardships. You know the brokenness that we live in. So thank you, God, that you've given us a means to relate with you, to connect with you through prayer, through fasting, through worship together as the body of Christ. Help us to run to you in our time of need, Lord. And when we need to, give us the strength to turn away from all the things of this world and just isolate our hearts. Give them fully to you. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.